to Thug Crowd Radio. Please listen to this important disclaimer in its entirety. All participants of this Thug Crowd Radio episode are characters. None of the stories sold during these episodes are based on facts, truth, or reality. All works of fiction displayed during this episode that resemble real-life situations are coincidental and are not meant to serve as guides or tutorials to commit any crimes in any country. Please consult an attorney for local laws and regulations. And as always, trust your inner criminal. treated very unfairly in this country. They're afraid to do anything because they don't want to lose their jobs. I have thousands of people saying Thug Crowd is fantastic, okay? I was thinking about Thug Crowd. I'm the biggest fan. And I know a lot about hacking, and hacking is a very hard thing to prove. The security aspect of cyber is very, very tough, and maybe it's, it's hardly doable. And I think Secretary Clinton and myself would agree very much when you look at what Thug Crowd is doing with the Internet. They're beating us at our own game. Hey everybody, I hope that you can hear me okay, because my Wi-Fi, where I just moved, is really bad, and I think that everything is... I can't hear anything actually on my own end. So, um, hey, hi. Oh, we're we're good to go. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, awesome. Well, hey everybody, welcome to uh, uh, Thug Crowd, um, episode twenty nine. Um, how's everybody doing today? Doing fantastic. Yeah, I'm doing oh, good. Yeah. Not a damn paradise. I'm just doing plumbing, you know. <laughs> Hell yeah! Whew. Well, I'm glad that we uh, we have migrated this to the um, the cloud here, so that I can just run it. And if I drop off, then there's no problem. I guess like a screen set, which is nice. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so today we're going to be talking with uh, Joe B. One um, about election security. And um, thanks RQU for joining us too, um, from and suggesting him because. Awesome stuff. Uh, election security is like literally the biggest thing on everybody's mind at this point now for cybersecurity stuff. And I feel like it'd be awesome to just talk about all those kind of things and go over some of our questions and concerns and just be able to actually get. Oh, there he goes. Be able to get. Yeah, we'll talk to you later. <laughs> Shit, man. So uh, I, I just think it's funny that the election stuff just off the bat, just uh, to keep it rolling, you know, if you guys were like Australia, we just roll the dice and we see like, oh, you're the prime minister this week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's some, uh, some good reads about the history of Australian elections. Yeah, like we don't even need electronic voting because uh, it doesn't really matter who you vote for. They just roll the dice and that's, it's all RNG. <laughs> One giant D&D campaign. Uh-huh. Awesome. Um, so yeah, did anyone do anything cool this weekend? Uh, anything cool to share? I slept in till noon. It's exciting. <laughs> awesome. 
uh, play a little bit with PAL and, and TSC with uh, Hack TV. So pretty much someone could create a, Yeah, someone actually spent the time and actually upgraded the original encoding uh, for it. So you can actually sit down and actually encode live uh, video. I mean, they actually had like a tutorial on how to actually do like NASA TV and pipe it through so you can actually watch it on your analog TV. But it's a lot of good fun. It's good use for like old technology. That's really cool. Yeah, I saw that. I, uh, I finally assembled my porta pack and installed the Havoc firmware. And uh, lo and behold, the last push, or the last merge into the Git repo was from Pike. Thanks, Pike. I had to correct one spelling error. There was a missing S. It's still contribution, open source world. <laughs> no, actually, uh, honestly, the, the original maintainer, he's kind of a, he, he's like a freaking machine when it comes to that code. He's, he gets all the props on that because that project wouldn't be where it's at without him. Yeah, very cool stuff. Yeah, I, uh, I wrote a script that shows that I'm typing in every Discord channel, even though I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect troll. Uh, oh yeah, I registered. Uh, I registered this on ctftime.org uh, for upcoming CTFs. So if you want to participate in the Thug Crowd team on our Discord, there is a channel you can join, and our points will go towards the total for the year as well. So that's kind of a thing now. Cool. I've been um, I've been trolling and tearing apart lots of live video group ch group chat snapchat kind of things like uh live me bigo you now um millions and millions of people using these things and zero security at all it's absolutely horrifying people making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on these apps and there's just no security at all um <laughs> we looked at we looked at discord and discord is reasonably professional and mainstream. Now imagine the thousand other Discord clones that are that aren't even on the Play Store. They're on like Chinese, you know, app sites and stuff. Um, it's yeah. pretty scary. Yeah, because I mean a lot of people are trying to do do those they're trying to like emulate the success of like Discord or any of yeah. like, the Iranian government. <laughs> right. It's they... just I mean, you can do WebRTC in like ten lines of code now. So you just got to wrap a container around like, like like Google Duo or Hangouts or something native to, to Android. You just wrap your own brand around it and resell it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think it's the same thing we've seen consistently with social media. Um, back from MySpace, like, even before MySpace, IRC servers, yeah. ICQ, whatever, where people just For sure. emulate the thing, emulate whatever it is. and doesn't matter if it's good. Just, oh, let's make money by me tooing on uh, on Facebook. Not hashtag me too, just me too, the idea. Yeah, jumping on the bandwagon there and just hastily throwing everything out into production as quickly as possible. Try to make it a sliver of a buck. But yeah, um, that's really cool. Um, so yeah, let's jump into the news section real quick because we have some big stuff to talk about today. Um, the first one on here, actually, thanks to Shell, too, for um, compiling the notes for us. No problem. This week. Thank you. Um, so the first one we have here is the FBI forces a suspect to unlock their iPhone X with a face with their face ID. And this is the kind of thing that we've been, like, we've talked about of people being coerced into this sort of biometric, you know, uh, 
unlocking, but this is just an interesting sort of case of just it being used and just on somebody. So I, I was talking about uh, this with a coworker, and they said that their uh, their niece often picks up their phone and just points it at their face. And, oh yeah. Uh, I, there's supposed to be a distress mode where, like, if it's the phone senses you're in distress, it's supposed to not uh, do this. But apparently, that nobody's been able to, no, or nobody I know has been able to show enough distress in their face that uh, it, it doesn't work. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. If you play with it, this is Joe uh, Joe Hall. Uh, if you play with it, Joby One. If you play with it, we were doing this at work the other day. If you cover one eye, you can still authenticate, but if you cover both eyes, you can't. And there's a setting for active attention. Presumably, it looks for your pupils to be looking at the freaking, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a infrared laser that paints your face with about 30,000 dots, right? And mm -hmm. anyway, so it's just, it's, it's, you can do all sorts of things. Like we were doing what we call the Kavanaugh face, which is like, like you, you ate a lemon or something, right? And you're just yeah, yeah. switching your face up, and that totally will defeat it <laughs> because it's completely a different topology for your face. It's crazy. Yeah, that, yeah. that's interesting though, because you can just sort of like it for for a fingerprint or a password. You have to have touching the phone in some way. You could be handcuffed, and somebody could unlock your phone. You know, with uh, your face ID like that. Well, there is uh there's also the mode where you press the three buttons or whatever then you need to enter the passcode but um i feel like by the time you you realize you need to press the three buttons it might be too late yeah yeah it's right on uh the fingerprint models it's a five click on the power button and on the um face models it's the claw which is the power button and the volume up button but you got to be careful because if you hit the five click on the face one, it actually calls nine one one instantly, and so you got to be ready to cancel that if if you're gonna play with that. But it does flush the biometric from the device, and then it forces a pin. Um, also, there was uh, iOS twelve lock screen bypasses this week through notes and stuff as well. So I mean, oh, yeah. uh, there, there was a Spanish video. Uh, it was a video in Spanish. I don't uh, where turning over the, the guy turns on uh, the voiceover assistant, opens up notes, takes a photo, adds some text, like does like goes through the series of convoluted steps that uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. But um, he then because the voiceover assistant's on, it's a invisible springboard that he's using like his thumb to swipe around and saying like the name of the apps or whatever. So. Um, there was another method as well that showed accessing people's contacts while it was locked and also um, accessing photos while it was locked as well. So, Yep. Bad day for the kind of bypass. But yeah, that's just an interesting thing. There's always going to be some way to get around any sort of protections no matter what we get. Um, so the next one here, actually, uh, buses can fly. Are you here? I don't know if we can hear you or not. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, feel free to jump in if you can get your microphone working there. Um, but yeah, the, the next one that we have on our on our news here is the cybersecurity researchers who spotted the first ever UEFI rootkit in the wild. This was a part of some 
APT work. Um, this is pretty cool, I guess. Not cool if you get it on your computer, but interesting to see how it actually was deployed. Um, so yeah, does anybody have any thoughts on this stuff? Because I'm not too familiar with UEFI, more just played with MBR stuff, but does anybody have any thoughts on this? I would like I would say this is like seriously just uh, derivatives from stuff that Snare did ages ago and like other people in that space. Um, yeah, but it's definitely like you know the stuff that came out of the NS NSA leaks, or whatever. But UFI, UEFI is really interesting, regardless. I mean, uh, if if you're if you have a Mac um, right now, you should just just to get a quick glimpse, like. Um, there's a uh, EFI partitions. Well, I mean, even on a newer PC, but it's more interesting on Mac, I guess. Um, if you boot to a Linux live distro and you look at that UEFI uh, partition, you'll find things like some really weird stuff in there, like you know your um, Wi-Fi key, uh, your Wi-Fi SSIDs are saved and stuff like that uh, on the chip. So like you wipe the disk, they're still there, whatever. So it's interesting um, being like you know that sort of air gappy. Um, style where say you know if you dual boot for example and you have a full disk part, like locked partition on one and, and unlocked on the other so you infect it via like you know the le the least secure side and you wait for mm -hmm. them to you know reboot into the into the other side and then you know you're hooking it at very early stages so it's uh it's very interesting you know and people often you know um over the over the years have decided you know, removing antivirus, removing viruses and stuff is quite difficult. So unless you're doing forensics, just reinstall. And I think the the, the best part about this stuff is obviously that uh, it doesn't matter. Just reinstall, and it's still there. Okay. Just maintaining yeah. persistence on the chip. Yeah, no, that's, that's the part about this sort of thing is that it, it is on your your firmware level. So even reinstalling it is not going to do anything, or turning it off and turning it on again is. We've um we already saw we already saw that um the nation states had the capability of you know the UFI firmware implants quite a while ago and actively use them in operation. We had like hacking team and a couple of other worse um professional corporate espionage kind of groups get exposed that, that have the same capability. If I was to put my conspiracy theory hat on, I, I look at this story and the first thing I do is is see who's reporting it, like which vendor, which security vendor it's coming from. And in this case, mm -hmm. it's coming from ESET, ESET. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I have mixed feelings about ESET. I use them sometimes, but only for like end user retail sort of stuff. But, um, can you hear me? Sorry, just interrupt. I just wanted to hear yeah. cool. We can hear you. Yep. Bye, Zodiac. Um, so my, from the conspiracy theorist, you know, skeptic point of view, I'm like, okay, yes, it's using this in some way to drum up business. Um, did they create it? I don't know. Are they, are they ramping it up? Probably a little bit. Um, and there's been some recent news about asset and NSS group and CrowdStrike. If you want to go down that rabbit hole, there's a bit of, um, there's a bit of fighting going on behind the scenes with, with malware vendors. And I guess there always is. There's uh, a little bit more than usual at the moment. Out, something else that came out related to this, I think last week uh, we saw was um, there was a uh, signature verification bypass in the microarchitecture of a bunch of the main, uh, the, the last like four or five series of uh, Intel processors. So I think from like Sandy Bridge onwards, maybe, or maybe even earlier, 
Um, and they'll say that the, the bypass would allow you to load um, a bad uh, UEFI image um, and then obviously chain that all the way through um, to loading a bad, like, you know, um, operating system image. So if you look at the top of the flowchart there where it's got the security SEC, like with the processor in it, at that point where the pro like where it emits the processor and, and goes through is um is where that uh that vulnerability was so linking up those like something like that with something like this um would allow you to bypass a bunch of stuff um also as well if you look at the apple type stuff um apple's efi protections now include uh, um the it's a bga chip that they use on their boards now so to access it, it's like through an SPI, like you need, there's like this SPI header that's like proprietary. Um, and if you want to buy uh, adapters for that, you can buy them online, Google. Um, but to, so like actually getting to the EFI chip physically has become more difficult uh, in Apple space as well. So for the, for the person who wants to actually remove this by like reflashing their EFI uh, chip, like good luck, it's pretty annoying. Yeah, it's not something I'd want. Really, kind of wondering who the. I mean, it, it's it's attributed to APT twenty eight fancy bear group, but we all know that doesn't mean anything. Roll the attribution dice. Um, but I really wonder who their target is for this. Like at at the at the more security sensitive end of the spectrum, like military, defense, government. Uh, um, do, do they even use like? Do they use UEFI? Do they use consumer kind of grade laptops with this capability? I think so. Uh, like, I'm in the white paper. Uh, it talks about targets being mostly government entities located in the Balkans as well as Central and Eastern Europe. Okay, so maybe not maybe not Five Eyes targets, but more local to Russia area i think the afi stuff though because of the ability to um have the checksum of the image you're about to load at multiple stages um to be installed on the devices i guess from a defensive standpoint it's you know compared to the traditional um bios mbr style like it's pretty superior um unfortunately with the complexity comes you know flaws so Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, exactly. So over the summer, I was actually working with uh, TPM stuff and UEFI and all of that sort of thing. And if you want to learn about UEFI, anyone can just download the uh, EFI development kit, EDK2. It's on GitHub. Um, I would really suggest go download it, play around with it, buy a $50 ThinkPad off eBay. Um it's pretty easy to get set up, and then you can just run EFI stuff. Uh, and so basically what I was doing was uh, implementing a secure boot with a TPM and doing all the UEFI development for that. And when I got there, uh, I found like four bypasses for what they had already within about a day. So. There's definitely a lot of vulnerabilities there. There's a, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, but it's not too hard to get set up with that. So, you know, go play around with it. Yeah, thanks. That's a, that's a really, I feel like it's one of those spaces a lot of people are probably afraid to touch.
Um, well, so. if you want to play with uh, firmware backdoors, you don't have to. You don't have to mess around with fancy bears and, and equation groups. You just buy like a shitty fifty dollars tablet from Alibaba, and guaranteed yeah. it will it will survive like a reflash. It'll survive whatever you do to it. It'll somehow still be popping up Chinese ads somehow. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of ads, the next thing we have on here um, is so Facebook's having a bad week um, as far as just being uncovered for various things. Uh, the first one that we have, though, is about the 2FA phone number being used to target people with ads. It's just, like, gummy. It's not, I don't know, it's just it's like, really? You know, I, I figured this would be the case, but the fact that it's been confirmed yeah. and it's just me, like, assuming, being pessimistic about how shitty a company can actually be, uh, this is definitely... Um, we, we kind of figured out a few years ago that they, they were... Um... They were importing people's contact books, um, regardless of whether those contacts were already on Facebook or linked to Facebook whatsoever. If you gave their app permission to read your contact book, Facebook was getting your entire contact book. Um, and what they do with it, who knows? Um, but it's yeah, I, it, it seems like they've got they've got some kind of devil at that organization. Maybe his name's Mark Zuckerberg. I don't know. And he sits there like thinking, <laughs> what information do we have that we haven't monetized yet that we can monetize? Okay. People, are, it's these like, dumb fucks are giving to us willingly because they trust us, and that's his attitude. So I think, um, I think his time is up. <laughs> I think he needs to to step down. We've we've lost Elon this week, and I think I think Zuck might be next. You think so? I well, hope so. I, one thing to consider is that if everyone's uploading their contacts, do they need you to up, specifically provide your phone number in the you know two factor or account recovery flow? Right. To get that. You already know who everyone is. And the problem here is like, you know, if, if they want to come out and say, no, we didn't use your two factor, you know, numbers for that kind of crap, then they have to tell you, but 400 of your friends gave us your phone number. Absolutely. They do like cross device identification with all of their kind of tracking tokens and beacons and stuff like that. Like, and the fact they own WhatsApp, um, of course, if you, if you install Facebook or WhatsApp, application onto a new device facebook's going to know the imei number they're going to know the ip address they're going to correlate all this stuff together and they're going to put it on your shadow profile and say we know these devices are you these ip addresses are you and these phone numbers are you it's going all into the database it may not be displayed on your profile but it's in our database uh, your location everything all the time when you install Messenger for, I don't know, it, I don't know, I haven't like used it for a while now, but um, doesn't it ask you for uh, to take control of your SMS to make it, you know, yeah. anyway? All Messenger apps do that now. It's pretty normal, but they were the, they, they pioneered it. Yeah, I remember yeah. just sitting at the first time, like a long time ago and just going like, whoa, fuck that. Yeah, and they're going to report all your like your backlog of SMS messages that have nothing to do with Facebook or anything. They're going to import those and mine them. Of course, yeah, of course they will. Two, two out of ten do not agree. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's all like the Rogan show. I I don't know. He seems to have fallen out of favor or something. Maybe 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 he uh maybe he banned Donald Trump for posting like spicy memes or something, and now Trump's put out an order like take him out. Take him out. <laughs> the memes were too spicy. Um, yes. The next part, though, about uh, Facebook here is something that's been 
kind of all over the place and there was kind of a couple different converging storylines and um it was an interesting week to read the sort of uh, echo chamber of data the telephone game but the facebook hacked 50 million now i think 90 million users affected by the non-expiring tokens that were used in the um bunch of various api um third-party like integration stuff as well as the uh, view as feature to generate them as well. But does anybody have like any sort of like clarification on this stuff? Yeah. I've seen way too much information about this. And I remember, ex- I remember exploring that view as feature extensively when Facebook bug bounty opened up and I had, I had like an intuitive feeling that something wasn't right there, but I never really found anything. So I'm wondering whether it was just like a OAuth token was included in a blob somewhere in that code um, or just maybe trivially encoded or something or recoverable from a from a resource that that page was loading yeah but i haven't found any technical details of it yet it must be something pretty straightforward yeah, yeah so I the person read. who wait what sorry were you gonna say dnc i was gonna say i did read that uh there was a token being generated and the the attacker was able to recover that token during the uh during the um view as and that was the equivalent of the login token yeah, and that's so you can use that for like Open Graph and all sorts of other uh, um, Facebook API stuff when you do have one. Um, so the um, the the researcher that got the researcher, I forget what his name is again, um, but he had the one who de- who threatened to delete Mark Zuckerberg's Facebook. Um, I think that he, I'm not exactly sure because you haven't seen any documentation about him specifically having disclosed this specific bug um but he had had been playing with that and posting screenshots of that um in the threats to mark zuckerberg Bizarre so i don't know if anybody guys saw that i posted it so, in the Twitter I mean, of brian krebs's story it, is this um, why why did why did the why did the researcher in quotes um go nuclear like this was there no no payout on a bug bounty maybe I don't, he he seems like he's a younger guy who's just he's just all his his pages like memes. It was like who would win, like Zuck versus like you know one spicy boy or whatever his his like meme oh. was. Whatever it translates. He might have just accidentally like, stumbled across this, stumbled across <laughs> like, hey, if I cut and paste this from the source and put it in the URL, I'm on someone else's Facebook account. He actually already was in the uh, the Facebook Bug Bounty Hall of Fame as well as uh, Line Corp. Okay. And a couple other ones. He's like a well-known guy, but it's oh, yeah, just, yeah. yeah. I was reading through all this stuff. Um, kind of funny. It's actually his his Facebook URL is facebook.com forward slash robots.tx. So I don't yeah. know if you guys want to check this page out. But yeah, um, so did anybody hear more about though, like how they determined why there's it says 50 million users affected and if there's any additional supplemental breaches that happened in this case because if it was just one person reporting a bug and like sharing it with his friends i'm not necessarily sure that that constitutes 50 million people being affected unless that's the potential for it but not necessarily like maybe there were like legacy legacy profiles or or only profiles that were created before a certain date because they changed something or um people that had certain permissions like legacy permissions on their profile like allow public to post on my wall kind of thing 
I, I know the full yeah. 90 came from the fact that that entire group was anyone that had view as used against their profile. Okay. Mm. So, yeah, that was the thing. So, I wasn't sure if there was yeah, an additional the person year. who then ran some sort of script or something to actually use the view as feature on that many people because that would be that's a, that's a significant difference from I found a bug I want to troll Mark Zuckerberg. You know, it goes from like that to like actual malicious terror. Maybe so there was know. a maybe there was a third party app that was actually actually using this view as feature and they calculated like, okay, how many times is this how many profiles is this thing scraped? Um, yeah. And it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's kind of interesting in and of itself that ninety million out of two point some billion use this feature, the view as feature. Yeah, I don't trust that number. I mean, I think I think Zuck's like creating a you know a million accounts a day himself. Like, yeah, I, I definitely think like it, it's kind of one of the, like the, everyone has the viewers feature available to them. Like, did, did is fifty million just the amount of accounts that were enumerated to generate tokens? Maybe like, they said that, that was the number that had the access tokens stolen, quote unquote. Yeah, so there's like they've enumerated it, they've generated the token, they've stolen the token, and then they've got fifty million tokens like in the wild. That's what like. I mean, that's what they'd have to be if they said yeah. that they fifty million were attacked, because that's you know far short of the total amount of users. So even fifty yeah. million is a lot. Like, how how would you go about logging into fifty million profiles and and like grabbing pertinent information or stealing all their photos and putting in a database? That's a pretty big job. Yeah, even yeah. just for fifty million, it's a huge job. And I mean, to, how, to... how would I go about it? Like, I don't do crime, but I would definitely need a botnet or, you know, some distributed platform in order to do it, you know what I mean? Yeah, or an app of some sort that has permission that people are willingly installing. Um, or right, yeah. Like a Cambridge some, Analytica. Just, some sort, yeah, some sort of distributed, like, way to have, like, you know, a bunch of threads doing this simultaneous for yeah. simultaneous. Hey, I, th I think like the fact that it, it went from, like, 50 million to 90 million overnight, so I don't think we should... Like it could be two billion tomorrow. They could say, "Oops, actually, it was everybody." Um, <laughs> so we don't know. Like we just we just have to trust them, I suppose. Um, and I remember this same sort of scenario happened with like LinkedIn when they got popped the second time, and it went from like one million to ten million to fifty million to everybody. So, who knows? <laughs> yeah, um, I think maybe we should also take a play or page out of the T-Mobile playbook and say that. You know, it's only um, like two percent of all users, so it's not that much when you put it in. <laughs> Even though it's fifty million, but yeah. So the next, uh, the next news story that we have in here is just kind of dumb, I think, but it's also really annoying. The United Nations Trello board was left open, and they leaked a bunch of data from. Them. Did you guys read about this? And yeah. people were playing with the boards recently too. Yeah, and this is actually a guy who's uh, in the Discord too. Well, I'm, I'm oh, trying yeah. to read about it, but the Intercepts website seems to block uh, VPN and Tor, which is interesting because they're called the Intercept and it's Greenwald and Snowden. Totally bogus. Damn. Mm. Wait, so this and is what... actually somebody in our Discord that uses this? That did this? Yeah, it's the, uh, like credited, yeah. Oh, dang, we should have actually got him on here. I didn't realize that. Oh, that's cool. Um, but yeah, these um, these sort of basically Trello boards are just like 
they have lists of tasks and information and um, they can be public or private. I just feel like it, <laughs> the one that's from the UN, uh, I don't understand why they wouldn't have marked it as private. Yeah, that's one of the things that was like in agile in an agile small team where you want to blah 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 get you know move fast and make big news and whatever. Um, these type of hosted uh, as a service agile boards are really common, like you know Trello or um, Asana or Pivotal or whatever. Um, and a lot of the time, people would just assume that you know, hey, I got this as a service. You sign into it. We're using SSO to sign on, which is convenient, and you know you get up and running really quickly. You add your whole team, and then people just start using it day to day as part of their workflow, um, and putting credentials in there by accident or putting some sort of other sensitive information in there by accident is not really that uncommon because people feel like it's safe. But at the end of the day, it's a, you know, these, they're hosted somewhere. Yeah. I mean, it's, it sounds like, it sounds prestigious, United Nations, but from a, from a, a targeting perspective, if I was to list like the top hundred hardest targets in the world to go after, the UN's not in that list at all. Yeah. Um, n- neither is NASA or any other government kind of and this isn't even go, this is multi-government lots of volunteers and NGOs and stuff like that so yeah, yeah. NASA's like the rite of passage entryway for skids mm-hmm. yeah yeah. Um, once again it's not because it's prestigious though it's because you know you get creds to the UN's remote file access sure. FTP and all this stuff right I was saying it, it's like stuff like literally that shouldn't be in any like you know publicly hosted place anything indexed by google it's once again like it's why google doors are so like prominent right it's because you can find shit like this that really really shouldn't be out there i can't remember what it was but one of the websites when i was doing i was searching for uh exposed git repos through docs um you know, I don't know five years ago or something and um, like the top sort of first page of Google was all big sites. And like it was, the talk was super simple and just the way that Google indexes things that you probably want, um, you know, the more click throughs, the higher it is on the, on the list or whatever. And so all the stuff on the first few pages was pretty interesting, you know? Yeah. Google like arranges things, and, you know, what targets are the largest <laughs> automatically yeah. for you. Thanks Google, you evil sons of bitches, the other reptilians. <laughs> hell yeah um the next one we have on here is this uh actually shell you put this one on here uh the i dracula vulnerability that impacts millions of legacy dell emc servers um so do you know if this is a remote thing or not it seems remote uh yeah i think it's just a um much more call it i didn't read it but i think it's looks like a login panel yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I've seen it before. It, yeah. It's basically like a um, like a way to on some legacy servers to reload or load um, your own firmware onto them, onto some servers. Yeah. <laughs> so like, just... generally with these sort of remote management systems, the K, uh, you know, IKVMs and BMCs and whatever you want to fucking call them, Hydrax, ILOs. Um, like it's all a network interface, and from what I've seen, they're pretty much just like Linux SOCs with an SPI interface to the motherboard, and then yeah. over SPI or over whatever, it's just giving the motherboard like you know reboot, start, um, 
in some cases like load this fucking uh you know mount this virtual image over the network or whatever so they're all network facing yeah. so i think it's like the, it's like the um serial access to like console ports on the powerage servers out of band management kind of stuff so there's often no security because they leave that security security is entirely up to you to like to segregate that infrastructure and that networking that conduit completely away from the rest of the network um so there is no like by design there's quite often no security because they just assume that this isn't even going to be used in production it's going to be a completely separate network with like a 3G modem attached for emergencies or something. Um, yeah, like in in data centers, like the uh, like so some of the stuff I've seen has been like the you know, f- physically separate switches, not just VLANs or anything, but they're like physically separate switches for management that uh, go back to the knock only, and so that they can yeah. you know they can turn the boxes on and on and on and off and, and provision them and whatever. But uh, in reality, I don't think you know that's not everywhere. Lots of places just plug them into the same network, or you know. Yeah. And, uh, well, they just don't know it exists. Like, how many look at look at Metasploit's like modules collection and do a search for just H just HP, Hewlett Packard, or Compaq, or or any just man, just the word management. Like every single one of these major vendors has hundreds of exploitable bugs over the last decade or two in their custom. Uh, management interface that very, very few customers use but are installed by default on everything they sell. Um, I think a couple of other things as well, like that I've seen on that kind of stuff is, is like because the system uh, is not very um, powerful and the, the first boot is generating private keys uh, for SSH and stuff like that, you know, you, you're not getting very strong private keys um, off a, a tiny SOC, like so. You know, if they're not preloaded, you know, if you have them set, you should probably generate them yourself and import them. Pro tip. <laughs> like just old versions of Dropbear and stuff running SSH. So don't yeah. look at Dropbear exploits or anything. Well, yeah, I mean, half of these half of these devices, you stick them on a network and discover they've got some bizarre variant of SNFP running on some UDP port that some uses some client application that real edge case scenario but they've built it in and they've rebranded it like dell has bought some other vendor and they've rebranded it dell uh remote emergency reboot system when it used to just be some snmp service on a weird port that some guy wrote a decade ago for one client and it gets rolled into the whole suite of network management products it gets rebranded and the vendor dell oracle whatever they rename it and very few people know how it works but for the one vital customer that's paid millions millions of dollars for it it keeps working for them so they forget like about that, it uh, as well in this article it says dell asked me not to run this story <laughs> of course <laughs> ah we look like fucking retards uh, don't run this well story. hp like years ago tried to sue researchers for like pointing out bugs in dumb bugs in like insight manager or whatever it's called hp hp's ilo compact thing they tried to uh, sue like people speaking at defcon and stuff not to talk about it uh Wolski's just posted a nice link there in uh twitter shout to Wolski. uh i'm not in twitter in in the twitch chat for uh an uh, ilo4 toolbox to play with so hell yeah uh last story that we have here um go over is the two people who are arrested in Oklahoma for a $14 million cryptocurrency that 
They basically just like sim swapped a uh, an exchange here, and yeah, stole four, or fourteen million dollars in uh, crypto. Yeah, it's uh, mm-hmm. it's nice to see that sim swappers are you know actually getting hit by uh, by law enforcement now. Yeah. No, it's definitely like something that it it it's too easy, and it's the same. I feel like now uh, it's become a lot more in the public consciousness. Um, similar, similarly to like things like swatting um, and other sort of social engineering tactics that can have some severe severe uh, um, downsides to them. Um, and so, yeah, people are definitely getting more noticed. I feel like hopefully, hopefully, the people at the you know Verizon store or whatever. Um, telco um, are going to get some more how to actually come um, back. What scares me is that the, the like like swatting and a bunch of other DDoSing things that, that, that young people can learn to do pretty quickly without really understanding how easy it is to get caught and traced. I think mm-hmm. a lot of these these guys are uh, figuring out how to do the SIM swap social engineering side of things and then how to capitalize on redirecting someone's phone. But they don't realize how difficult it is to actually have a SIM card uh, <laughs> and, and a smartphone in their pocket and be wandering around and the Illuminati doesn't know where they are. They got like, they, they don't understand that side of it. Like they can, they can do the SIM swap and they're like, we got this burner SIM that we bought from Walmart. It's fine. We'll never get caught. I used fake yeah. details on the website. It's cool. They're like, no, nah, dude. <laughs> so like there, there is, APIs to try and, uh, I'm not trying that's not the right word, to, to determine the location of a particular like MZ or IME, which is attached to the phone number, not to mention yep. you're on camera probably purchasing it. Um, yep. there's a whole, a whole bunch of different things, did, that, you know, your money. Trail. Did you purchase it using, yeah. Did you use it, you use the matrix money or did you use Bitcoin or did you, use, yeah, yeah there's always a... actually how they got them to is by finding out where they purchased it. And they're like, oh, those are the guys. And then they tracked them down to a hotel they were staying at. And I went, hey, uh, you, you, jail. Yeah, there's, <laughs> yes. there's a whole bunch of other trails that I think a lot of hackers don't understand that these trails even exist. So they don't know how to obscure them or, or hide them. They're too focused on the like the front end, not the infrastructure. <laughs> If you want to be a great script kitty these days, you need to like not just a good script kitty. You need to be a great script kitty. You need to be excellent at um, DDoSing, uh, building shitty botnets, sim swapping, and Fortnite. If you can do that, you will be an yep. excellent script. Kitty. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you will. Uh, um, yeah, so that's about it for the news. Um, and I feel like we might, if you are ready, um, Joby One try to get into our actual main topic because I know that people have had a lot of questions about this sort of thing and we have our Twitch Happy to. Um, so yeah, um, would you want to start going now? Sure, yeah. I mean, whatever. Yeah, um, happy okay. to start when you are. Awesome. All right, yeah. So, uh, you know, so Archie, you had told us about you and we're really excited to get you on because we've, we've wanted to cover some more of this kind of thing as there are it's it's becoming or let me back it up. There are elections coming up soon in America and election security has been a hot topic for a lot of people. But there's a lot of hearsay and a lot of weird information and it's hard to know exactly what all of this sort of means in context. So um yeah. I'd like to first ask you, how did you get involved in 
this sort of field of research? Oh man, so I'm old. I'm like 40, right? Um, mm -hmm. So I uh, originally started out in astrophysics. Um, I used to model planetary atmospheres in Fortran 77, which is nothing I wish upon anyone. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it was fun. But, like, at some point you have to ask yourself, you know, what are you doing this for? And when I asked myself that and asked other people when it comes to the uh, astronomy and science stuff, it's to help, wait, no, it's to, to solve the mysteries of the universe. And I really wanted to help people do something different. And I saw a talk by my future PhD advisor, a woman from a, a law professor, actually, from Berkeley, Pam Samuelson, about how in American law, the DMCA was inhibiting cryptography research. And I was like, what? And um, it just seemed really strange that people get, pay get paid to think about those things. And so I was like, how do I do that? Um, at some point, my first job that wasn't an astrophysics job was for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And uh, it was a strange thing. It was just like, hey, do you want to do some consulting? And essentially pull together a bunch of rap sheets for voting machines. Essentially profile, you know, front-looking face for each of the voting machine models in the United States. And then a list of how often they got in trouble and what you do if they act up and things like that. It was, it was pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, yeah. right after that, we got four other academic institutions, like $10 million from the National Science Foundation to do voting technology stuff. And part of what we were doing was you know, examining the stuff that's out there on the market. And then in 2007, man, it makes you feel old when you say that. Damn, 2007, um, we were hired by the Secretary of State of California and then the Secretary of State of Ohio to do essentially security evaluations of the voting machines in both those states. And it's very sad to say that many of those exact same machines are the same things that are out there being used right now. And many of the findings that we have in those reports, which are a lot of fun, if you want to read them, um, I can, I'll post links at some point. Um, uh, but they yeah, know, talk about, you know, buffer overflows, things like um, even physical security attacks, things like um, a lot of the thermal paper that the, that we rely on to create the paper record that we need so much to do recounts in these machines. Um, those things are easily defeated with just rubbing alcohol. I mean, if you try it sometime with some old receipts, it totally removes the, the thermal ink from the rest of the paper. And that's supposed to be the official record of the vote, right? And so mm -hmm. uh, there's just a bunch of things that we found then. Um, it's been, a, anyway, so that, that's how I got into it. I guess I, I'll, I could talk forever, but I'll, I'll just, I'll stop there. That's how I got into it. And I've been sort of doing that ever since. And it's this thing where it gets sort of a variable amount of attention. Like right after 2000, there was a lot of attention. Right after 2016, there's a lot of attention. It hasn't really stopped, but man, um, it's the kind of thing that people forget about pr pretty easily. Oh yeah, absolutely. But you know what? It's interesting though, is that I, you know, having seen, you know, a lot of the contention around the 2016 election and a lot of the allegations of hacking and fraud of all sorts. Um, it's, it's kind of stayed a bit more in the public consciousness than I feel like it has before, just because there has been credible evidence relating to this sort of thing, as well as people now understanding more the sort of technologies and attack vectors that would be used for something like this. So I feel like it's kind of stayed where you'd still ask somebody if they had concerns about election security you know, a lot of people would probably say yes. Um, so, 
I don't know if you have any thoughts on that specifically. Sorry, I'm using the push to talk, and for some reason my screen slipped, and I have an enormously long password. So it took me like, because I'm not confident using the freaking fingerprint reader on these new MacBooks. They, it's not the same thing. Anyway, whatever. Long story short. Um, um, so, uh, could you repeat what you just said? No, I just said that that there is there was um, like the oh, YouTube talking talking a little too much about or talking much about election security um it kind of comes up when there's some sort of uh, issue with the election but i feel that with specifically this this past election for president in the usa there has been the the conversation has still sustained where there's still allegations of fraud and hacking and also really tampering and it stayed a lot longer than it really has normally yeah yeah and up until 2016, you know, a lot of us, all the stuff, all the papers I've written, all the stuff we did was focused mostly on the thing we all worry the most about, which is changing the vote count, right, and and getting someone different elected. But what we saw in 2016 is they didn't even, as far as we can tell, pay any attention to that so much. I mean, what they basically did was nibbled around the places that a, a, a real attacker would, although if you read the Mueller indictment, you believe that stuff. It's kind of B team. I mean, a lot of that stuff is like their Google search history and stuff like that coming from a single IP address. Just weird stuff, right? Um, but I guess what we realized in 2016 is, oh my, you know, it's a bunch of other stuff. It's 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 the voter registration databases. It's there are this awesome story I can drop a link in at some point where a uh, uh, some opportunistic hacker, some guy on Twitter named Cyberzeist. Um, broke into the Alaska election night reporting website. That's just a website built on PHP of all things that it just shows the results and gets updated regularly in a DMZ. And uh, long story short, uh, some really fascinating system administrator didn't realize that rsync doesn't copy hard links and their PHP distro had basically not updated for like two weeks. And that's they had a window of two weeks. These guys broke in and were able to look and at the file system and post screenshots of the file system on Twitter, but weren't able to do anything else. They were like, I, the way I described it to the press, they broke into the screen door and didn't get, you know, anywhere farther. They didn't get through the deadbolt on the front door, so to speak. Uh, but so it's just a totally different landscape in the sense that there are folks, there's sort of a bunch of different actors we can think about. Um, there's the ones we know we have, like the nation states, so to speak, or people looking, trying to look like nation states, doing a good job of it. Um, there are these opportunistic hackers that this guy, Cyberzeist, broke into the Alaska election night reporting website just to, you know, you know, parlay for cred to get into sort of forms of financial fraud that was more lucrative and things like that. Um, and the other thing, this is something I'm waiting for, is, you know, when nation states start to start doing things, you start to see organized crime say, oh, well, geez, we could do that. And, you know, for much more narrow, non-political, mostly financial or, or other kinds of goals, right? And you can imagine the proverbial Tony Soprano wouldn't bat an eye at, you know, dropping 100K to term an insider at a local election office. And, man... There's one thing that these things aren't like like anything <laughs> terribly resistant to is, is, your, is your insiders, right? And so, you know, you can imagine a waste management bond in the West Coast, and you know, unfortunately, they 
elect vote for laws in many of the west um, western states in the united states and that's not the best idea <laughs> for a number of reasons um, but yeah so it's, it's just a sort of a different landscape and a lot of you know now it's critical infrastructure you know, now the election uh, there's they have their own isac their own ei isac election infrastructure information sharing and analysis center um, and I, you know, but still, it kind of feels like and I've been saying this, and I feel bad because I love my election official friends. But it's kind of like, you know, janitors versus Navy SEALs. Like you're trying to sharpen their brooms a little bit more so that they can, you know, hopefully impale someone that rushes them. But you know, who knows? We'll, we'll see. Like, as far as we can tell, Russia's been Russia, quote unquote, has been involved this year in doing a couple things. Key loggers on. Barbara Mikulski and the senator's um, uh, uh, campaign laptop and a couple other things, but they seem to be laying low as far as we can tell. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's like, it's it's one of those things where it's, it's hard to, as we heard Donald Trump say earlier in the uh, intro, it's, uh, you know, he knows a lot about hacking and it's hard to figure out who did it. And attribution is difficult and it's, <laughs> it's hard to pinpoint anybody there. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I guess maybe we could sort of back up a little bit without the specifics and talk a, a bit more about what the biggest threats are to election integrity. Because there's a lot of moving pieces in an election, and there's a lot of people involved, people who will maybe not be the most security-focused, systems that might not be the most updated. So I kind of wanted to pick your brain about what are some of the you know, actual critical components of an election happening on like a... You know, all sorts of different levels, and then sort of what are the, the the choke points and the pain points in that? Yeah, so you think of elections as sort of a, a process in time. You know, people have to be registered. Uh, uh, there is a election day, or in many places now, there's there's like you know, a couple of weeks where you have large polling places and vote centers in them, and then you have basically the counting process which starts on that election night but actually goes for like 15 to 30 days afterwards people don't realize that the day after the election is quote unquote unofficial results they're largely from digital sources and haven't yet sort of had the T's crossed and I's dotted um, so there's a bunch of different things that, that happen there like and, and the things that we tend to do is we tend to um, think about these in a, in a bunch of different sort of isolated systems but they're all connected in a way you have the voter registration system, which has to have an online component because, uh, you know, uh, uh, online voter registration is something that, you know, it, it, it's easier to do than casting votes. It's the kind of thing where it's, you, you want to do that, not have paper. And if you, you can do it right, and many people do do it right. But it's, it's kind of a complicated thing because you have to have sort of a system of record that is air-gapped that you do updates to from sort of a web system. And we've seen cases like in Illinois in 2016 where attackers used a SQL injection to essentially exfiltrate a bunch of voter registration records. Um, and then there's the voting system itself, so which is you know the things that people will cast votes on. And some of those, it just depends on, there's a whole variety of those things in polling places or elsewhere. There's the old school lever machines. I don't know if anyone uses lever machines anymore. There's there's still one county, I believe, in Johnson County, 
Kansas that uses punch cards. There's a bunch of tiny, tiny counties that do hand counted paper ballots, but that's really only feasible for small counties. Yeah. Oh, hold on. Actually, Joe, you're you're scraping against the microphone a little bit, and it's kind oh, of cool. Sorry about that. It's my oh, damn beard. Totally. <laughs> yeah, you know what? That, that happens to me too. Right on. Um, Thanks for telling me. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, um, you were talking about you know the the different methods of actually counting votes, and that's that's something a lot of people say. You know, oh, we have to only do um, you know paper ballots or you know make it secure and stuff. But a lot of people don't realize the massive scale to which people are processing this data, and that's the exact reason why computers were invented was because. They need to process massive amounts of data that would normally be counted on paper. So, it's, yeah, it's, and, and a real easy thought experiment is just to take Los Angeles. Los Angeles is the test when it comes to scaling, right? Five million voters, five thousand polling places. Um, so many polling. They run an election every month in some town in LA. It's kind of crazy. You know, most people do one a year, or whatever they do, they do all the time, but not not necessarily the whole the whole city or the whole county, right? Voting at once. But they pick up ballots in helicopters, and one of the reasons they do that on on general elections is because with five thousand polling places in the traffic in LA, you're guaranteed that someone's going to get in a wreck, and it, it may be a fiery wreck, and you may burn up ballots. And so what they do is have people drive much shorter distances, and then they use helicopters to pick up the ballots, which is just crazy. Um, That's and, really and so crazy. Those are, yeah, it's just wild, man. Um, and, and so the voting, the, the voting systems, you know, and we have, what is it, um, five states use fully electronic, so there's no paper record that's created by the voting machine or that people vote on. Um, there's 33 states that use all systems that create or keep paper. It's really important. There's a bunch of others that have some, you know, mix of those things. And when it, so you have just the, the regular voting machines are like, we call them DREs. Those just keep an electronic record. And that's kind of, you know, that's something that is totally frowned upon by the technical community because you have to have what we call a software independent record, something that if if the operating system or something goes wild and starts to write over the, the, the storage medium or something like that, you know you have some other record that you can count later to get an independent you know, idea of what the vote is. Um, anyway, so there's a whole there's optical scan voting machines, which are like the ones that you would fill out like a like like a, a bubble like on a scantron and things like that, um, all the way up to the the latest and greatest, which are essentially really expensive pens. These things called ballot marking devices, and those are you walk up to it with a ballot, it sucks it in, you interact on a touchscreen, and it really does. It just fills in the, the ovals. It doesn't keep any state, so it doesn't, you don't have to worry about it counting anything. You can throw that thing away. It's just marking a ballot for you, and then you you know feed that into a scanner or something like that. Um, all those things result in some type of election medium, and I just posted a link right before we started talking in the general or the voiceless voice or whatever place where it's a brand new article that covers a, a letter that a bunch of us wrote that basically said this. Please don't use wireless forms of transmission um, for this upcoming election because it's 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 just if you can uh, unless you're like in Alaska in Alaska they have like bush pilots bush pilots who will send ballots and materials back and forth to places that are really hard to get to and so you can imagine they do a lot of you know telecommunications and wireless transmission and they may not be able to avoid it there but um, that's an example of you know accumulating results you got to get the the digits 
back to some you know centralized notion of you got to count all the ballots in the county or whatever. Um, and then, you know, the, the other thing I think I would point out is there's when you walk into a polling place, it used to be that there was a big spiral bound book that you would say, hey, my name's Joe. I'm going to want to vote and then cross you off and then give you something like a ballot or a token or something and you go vote. Um, increasingly, those little spiral books are being put in laptops and iPads and, and tablets and all sorts of things. Um, and, and so that's another area where those may even be networked amongst themselves. Uh, and that's another area where we have just a lot of concerns about uh, these things being connected to each other during the day and either a denial of service, meaning that you can't actually, you know, mark people off as being a, um, a, a authorized to vote or whatever, or uh, people just pretending like they're voting and, and not voting, sort of doing a different kind of an denial service where they would um, uh, invalidate your ability to vote by coming in and, and doing that. Anyway, that's a very broad overview. Sorry, that was very long and windy. Oh, no, we need that, though. That's the kind of thing. See, I think that one of the things that is a big concern for everybody is that not a lot of people understand exactly how it goes everywhere. You know, they, they see what they see in their own polling places, their own municipalities and everything, but they don't know the scale at which this happens and the different methodologies that are used to actually collect votes. Yeah, it's it's unfortunately really complicated. I mean, like, part of it's just, you know, how the United States is designed, right, by the Constitution is we delegate to the states the ability to run these elections, which means we have 10,000 election jurisdictions. You know, like a place like Wisconsin has 4,000, of which 400 of those people turn over every year and you want to some of those people have never even seen a computer I blow your minds but it's definitely the case um, and it's just really complicated and there's all these different things and part of what we hope to do I guess like you know the, and I, I work at a nonprofit that we do research and we also do advocacy we try and tell you know hey this is what you should do <laughs> Congress or whatever um, we're hoping that just like transportation funds and things like that that we get some regular ways of, of funding security for elections and that in the process that sort of sets the baseline of what we expect. And you got to be careful because states hate being told what to do, but at some level, you know, things like default passwords, one, two, three, four, five, six, stuff like that. We got to be able to do better than that. Right. Anyway. No, oh, yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, um, like there's there's just so many you know because it's it's being distributed amongst tons of different people and places, um, people who might not be technically savvy and they're just kind of doing the best that they can, you know even if it's not actually up to par, it's still a, a huge thing that just have to entrust with a bunch of people. But I guess what are some of the common misconceptions I guess that you see amongst people now that this has been a big conversation about election integrity? Because I mean we have like you know allegations of millions of people illegally voting and things like that, as well as just other sorts of random errata that might get passed around. Um, so I want to you know, ask you what, what you see as some of the most common misconceptions about election integrity as a whole. Right on. So um, the biggest one is if it's not connected to the internet, it's not hackable. I mean, like, I don't know who gave them that idea but so many election officials will say that and it's like you have to think of things that they'll remember you can say back when they say that and that and we settle on things like 
well, we had viruses and malware before we had the internet. We had floppy disks. You remember those? And they typically do remember those because these are, you know, older folks. Um, and then it's like, oh, wow. Yeah, I guess that does make sense. And then you can have a discussion about transmission vectors and how, you know, it's not, it's not just the internet or it's not connected to a Wi-Fi network, so it's not hackable. They, they just, someone tells them that and they think, oh, that makes sense. That's an easy rule of thumb to remember. Um, the other one on the other side is, well, why don't we just go back to paper ballots? You know, and it's like, we have so many millions of people. Like, just to give you an example, another Los Angeles example, in California, you have to count 1% of precincts manually. It's just the law. Um, and for a place like LA with 5,000 precincts, uh, oh, wait, no, it's a 1% or it's 10%. I forget what it is. That's, uh, I forget what it is. 1% sounds super low. I did this is part of my PhD. I should remember this. Whatever. Um, it's some, it's got to be 1% because it's not 10% because that's a, that's like 500 precincts or something like that. But anyway, whatever, whatever the amount is, it's so resource intensive that it takes Los Angeles 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 30 days, which is the amount of time they have before they have to tell the Secretary of State what the real answer is. It takes them like teams of eight working 24 hours a day, seven days a week with no breaks to get it just to get like, I think it's 1% counted by hand in 30, in 30 days. And so the amount of effort you would need to do that at scale to get the answer, even within 30 days, not to mention the day, the, the day after is intense and, and it just doesn't make any sense. And the places around the world that do do well with hand counted paper ballots are like Canada or, or England, even where you're voting for a member of parliament, you're not voting for anything else. It's one person's name, so to speak. Whereas like in California and places like that, we vote for board members of a mosquito abatement district. And I don't know, who decided that people need to vote for mosquito abatement districts, but we do vote for them and they're on the ballot. And sometimes there are instant runoff voting, which means there's three copies of the same race. One is your first preference, the other is your second preference, the other is the third preference, because it just doesn't, you know, something you can do in a computer interface doesn't really work out very well on paper in many cases. And like, you know, another point there is that in Los Angeles, they have 12 languages. They You can vote in Loatian in Los Angeles. There's a there's a language you can vote in in Los Angeles that has no written form. So you have to vote using an audio ballot, but because some number of thousands of people in Los Angeles, as I say, don't dream in English, they've decided that, you know, they want to be able to have people vote in that language. And that that's totally awesome. And they do that, but it just goes to show like, you know, doing some of these things, like how do you fit 12 languages on a single ballot? Okay. If you're going to split the languages up, how do you do without creating a side channel so that you know that the one person voting in Chinese, you don't, you can't identify their ballot and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. So those are two misconceptions. The only other one I think I, I'd point out is the, is the voter fraud one where there's just really deep, really awesome academic research that shows that I think it's Justin Leavitt who showed that out of 2 billion votes cast in the United States, there was something like a thousand fraudulent votes. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. you really should spend your time thinking about something else. Is, is yeah, this, no, um, definitely. Is this like the case, like, have you had people just tell you, like, well, why don't we do blockchain voting? And then you just go, oh, yeah, blockchain. my God, Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's endless, man. I don't know what's in the water, but this is like, well, blockchain's been around for a while. I don't know why it is this. It's like, maybe it's just the venture capitalists or whatever, but it's just crazy. And unfortunately, West Virginia, 
one state in the United States is running a blockchain voting pilot in the general election for their midterms coming up here in five weeks or whatever, um, using this company's kit called Votes, which is not a Bitcoin blockchain thing. It's a hyperledger, which is this uh, form of private blockchain, so to speak. But, you know, I'll consistently tell folks three things. One, this is the last thing you should be thinking about. You need to think about two-factor. You need to think about passwords. You need to think about DDoS mitigation. You need to think about ransomware. I'm telling you, someone's going to get hit by ransomware before the election happens, and they're going to be just up shit creek without a paddle. And, and it's really hard to recover from that unless you are practicing that kind of stuff and, and replicating regularly, right? Uh, but yeah, blockchain voting is just hilarious. And I, what I tell people is, you know, it, it, it may, if you're using the Bitcoin blockchain, you're committing something to the public, you know, sphere. And if it's an encrypted ballot, we're going to break all that crypto within 10 to 20 years or it's going to rot or whatever, right? Ciphertext rots, right? Um, and the last thing you want to do is tell a West Virginian Marine who voted in the 2018 election in 10 or 20 years, hey, is this your ballot? You know, it's, it's not, they're not going to be too enthused. And, you know, some people don't care so much about people knowing how they vote, but many folks, you know, really have to keep that 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 secret for a variety of reasons. And, and man, that's something that, that, you know, we hope to achieve a state where everyone can feel like they can express themselves privately when it comes to that. But, man, it, it's hard when people come up with these whiz-bang Wow, kinds of knobs and doohickeys on the voting process that don't really need to be there. Yeah, I think, um, like, so I'm actually a fan of Hyperledger generally, like, for certain, cool. certain applications. But I, I think that, like, if you're thinking about blockchain, like, based on what you're saying, where the problems are in these voting systems, like, you need to solve the, the core issues before you worry about, like, some technological leap. Word. Yeah, yeah, I've been like, you know, look, your devices, your networks, your servers are all freaking insecure, and here you are slapping some blockchain on it. And in this case, it's a, I could, if you want me to post a link to this, I could post it. It's a four-node Hyperledger blockchain all managed by the same company. And so it's like, it, you know, not even trying to do the, the sort of the ideal, like, independent organizations are managing part of the the node infrastructure but you know i think part of it's they just want to be able to say they ran a block the first blockchain election and they'll be able to say that i just hope that they that we can't say well you know all that data is total shit <laughs> the, best, say, the bits you receive yeah they, they can say we ran the first uh blockchain election that got hacked as well so <laughs> well the funny thing is you know their core product is votes v-o-a-t-z is a identity verification module where you hold up a government issued ID and stare at the phone camera. And then it, I think it, it, it asks you to perform a challenge, like wink with your right eye or something like that to prove liveness or whatever. That's their core app is doing that kind of a, uh, you are the person that this ID says you are, which is hilarious because what are you going to, you can't just paste a image on a fake ID or something. I don't know, but maybe they, maybe not. Uh, but that's the core like product but for some reason they've put all this voting crap around it because they think that's what's going to really sort of let it take off and man we've just been killing them in the press and i feel bad but it's like you know this is this is just it, i actually stopped telling you know this sounds really stupid to say but we've actually stopped taking press calls on blockchain voting because it's just such a freaking distraction and it's like no you know i don't i'm not going to spend my time on that i don't want to feed the news cycle on that but it, it's 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 kind of silly it's definitely the um it's very similar uh sort of process to the kyc process in the financial land mm, yeah 
so like actually passing you know your like proving your identity without face to facing is extremely difficult and there's not a lot of ways to do it um they can be Words. reliably hold up you know and with the death of knowledge-based authentication post Equifax, right? It's like, <laughs> right. we're just pretty sure that all that crap is useless for some level. Yeah, there's a lot of companies as well, like when you KYC to do um, a bit, you know, Bitcoin or whatever, you want to buy something, you have to do the process. And there's, there's uh, the third party companies out there that literally have a room full of people just comparing the ID that you uploaded to the video that you've uploaded, like, you know, that, or wink or whatever and they're like oh yeah that looks like the guy yeah yeah totally i mean is that really yeah i mean so if you take that down to like back to the people level if, if a random person comes up to vote at the election and they bring out their government issued id and the uh the guy behind the desk says can you turn your head to the left and wink or turn your head and cough or whatever um <laughs> is that really the guy does that guy does the person doing the verification really know like not really like and that's kind of the funny thing is the way, you know, at least in the United States, it's it's been is that we tried to create the size of a precinct. So the, the thing that you would, the voting unit as being essentially small enough to where if you're in line and someone claims to be someone they're not, that people would sort of notice that kind of a thing. And, you know, that was it's a pretty archaic notion of, of, you know, like how many people know their neighbors. Like, I kind of know my neighbors. I don't know if I would necessarily be able to spot them in line but you know whatever um and that's kind of drifted and so a lot of people are like wow you don't have to show your id in a lot of states in the united states that sounds kind of crazy but it, that part of that is that there's there's a burden involved with they're not ids aren't free and they're not easy to get and because of that that means that there's there's people we want to vote who don't have ids and it, it there's all these other weird aspects like there's so many side channels in voting it's ridiculous when i was at princeton in a postdoc we did this work where we it's called paper fingerprinting you know believe it or not you can use a commercial scanner to actually use the fiber structure of a piece of paper to identify that piece of paper so the problem is take a ream of paper or pull a single blank piece of paper out that out, out of that do anything you want that's not adding to the piece of paper at all Put it back and shuffle it and can you identify that blank piece of paper again well yes we can do that with this technique and so that means there's sort of you know there's this basic limit on how uh, anonymous you can be right is that if someone can to give you a ballot that they know that they've doctored in some way it's it's really hard for us to protect against those kinds of attacks So you're saying that the numbers in California were of actual uh, fraudulent or voting. Like, so is it is it fraudulent voting or like people voting twice? Like, what's the it, biggest? And, and, uh, typically, we talk about the 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 archetypical voter fraud is called a, a voter impersonation attack, and that's when you go and claim to be someone else, and you're able to cast a ballot, and you remove from them their ability to cast a ballot. You basically added another. A ballot to the stack that shouldn't be there and there's nothing you can do to because if we do it right once you've cast a ballot there's no way we can tell whose ballot yours is in in the in the bag of ballots there's also you know straight up you know adding trying to add ballots to to something or or, or remove them those can be hard to do because when when it comes down to it if you get 900 ballots from a polling place that has 300 voters you know something's fishy there and you may just invalidate the entire thing if it if it if it if you if you just don't know where those came from 
would you say that the amount of effort for physical voting for turning up to, you know, if I went around to five or six voting, because I mean, we do it at schools and stuff here. I'm not sure where you guys actually do it over there. Um, but if you, if you just show like how much effort does it take for one person to go vote five times compared to somebody infiltrating the sort of, um, you know, uh, supply chain, I guess, and, and feeding the votes, like what's more effective. Well, this is where it gets really depressing. I mean, um, so we do vote in schools, churches, garages, um, retirement homes, all sorts of things. And one of the sad things is that it just logistically often the voting equipment is sent, you know, days, sometimes a week before the election day. And so there'll be, you know, kids walking by at school, a pallet of shrink wrapped or cable tied or um, tamper taped um, voting machines all, you know, sort of together, um, which is unfortunate because you'd like those to be under lock and key, or you'd like them to have some critical component that's not delivered to the last moment, like, you know, a memory card or something. Um, but that's not often the case. And so, unfortunately, you know, getting, and if you've ever visited us at the DEF CON voting machine village, you know, getting physical access to these machines is, is pretty much game over considering how old many of the, the, the models are. I mean, these are typically 10 to 15 year old computing systems, you know, x86 and Z80. I have a I can, this really interesting paper about 12 years ago doing a return oriented programming, a ROP attack against a Z80 Harvard architecture machine called the Sequoia AVC Advantage, which is kind of cool because Harvard architecture, right, means it's splitting the instruction from the data set into two different uh, types of memory and stuff. Anyway, pretty cool stuff, but uh, um, I lost track of where I was going. I got so excited about the ROP stuff. Yeah, that, that sounded really <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> splitting into two types of memory and doing ROP attacks, that's elite. Um, were they, were they oh, no, but you asked Boy, the... like... Sorry. What was that? Oh, I was just saying, were they, were they putting on a Game Boy with a Z80? Like... No, I'll post this uh, here. It, it, it's uh, it's an 800-pound, 25-year-old computer, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, but it's pretty wild. But, so you yeah, you are asking about, like... Access. Yeah, yeah. That's the, kind of the problem is, you know, you'd like these things... If they're going to withstand that, you'd like them to be designed more like ATMs, right? Um, where physical access isn't game over. You still have to do quite a bit of, you know, actual kinetic and or whatever <laughs> uh, explosive in some cases types of things to even get access to that kind of stuff. But then again, you know, maybe ballots should be money. That's not a bad, that's a kind of interesting idea. But no, um, yeah, so physical access is really kind of game over, whereas... The one place I think, you know, voting multiple times might actually be pretty feasible is absentee balloting. So, you know, vote by mail um, balloting. There's only a few states in the U.S. that have where you have to have an excuse to vote by mail. In most other states, you can just say, hey, I'd like to vote by mail and you're allowed to. And that means it's really easy, you know, to sign your ballot and just hand the blank ballot to someone who can drop it in the mail um, and that ballot will be counted, but it will be their votes, right? And there's we did some work a while back on vote ordering attacks. You know, how much entropy do you need in the sort of in what a ballot is in terms of uh, to be able to actually tell people, hey, you vote this way for president, but vote this unique pattern down ballot so I can 
identify your ballot if they release images of the ballots, which is sort of unfortunately a pretty popular thing. It, it sounds like, oh, great, we have all the ballots in image form, you know, all, you can, you know, get some Python going, do some, you know, computer vision, whatever, count them yourself and stuff like that. But unfortunately, it does mean that you're leaking unique permutations of the ballots, which can be a side channel as well. But then again, you know, in security, we have a tendency to like, you know, there's so many ways to leak information and, you know, preserving anonymity perfectly and balloting would mean we'd have to use like etched aluminum or, or whatever and restrict people's voting patterns or disassociate different contests from each other and stuff like that. What about uh, like with the physical voting, like traditional forensics, like handwriting or whatever, like, is that something that any, like on a scale, obviously that's ridiculously like huge, but I mean, is that something that we're losing by going to electronic methods, like the ability to detect when, you know, if you have two ballot forms that you could possibly attribute it to the one person? You read my mind. Another thing we did when I was at Princeton is um, some quick investigation of, you know, um, how much does your unique pa pattern when you fill in ovals, for example, on a ballot, how much does that give away about your identity? Right. Um, it turns out we fill out ovals in a very unique ways. It's just unfortunate, you know, and it's just how, how it is. And it, it sort of depends on all you need is if you have a ballot with only two contests, you have like two ovals. You don't have enough signal to really differentiate one person from another. But if you have a typical ballot, you know, like California, for example, two, I just know California very well. Sorry, I keep on mentioning that. But a two card ballot, you know, contests on both sides, you slowly are able to use some pretty simple machine learning to classify. Uh, different people's uh, tendencies to fill out vote targets in a way that's identifiable, um, which means like if you have a machine fill in those those ovals for you, you destroy that sort of identify identifiable pattern. And which you know, but if you don't, if you don't have a machine, we have used bingo daubers in the past, and you it's kind of strange bingo daubers. It's like if you ever. I'm not sure many people in this Discord have spent a lot of time in bingo halls. Not that I have, but Hell yeah, they, fat ladies. oh yeah, yeah. yeah but they have these ink things that deposit a very precise amount of ink in a very specific circle, uh, which is like why I tell folks like you can get ones that actually can fill in a vote target. It's like if you're really paranoid about having your vote determined later, you could use this. But unfortunately, right now, it would stand out as being the only one that uses a bingo dauber for. That, uh, so I, I guess the takeaway from that would be if you are filling out ovals, don't just use your left hand, but uh, if you know, scribble in the opposite direction that you normally do, or hit your hand with a hammer and then do it. Or no, that's not a good idea. That's the way. So, so what do we do then? I mean, like, so translating that problem, solving that problem to electronic land of identifying people i guess that's a pretty i know this is a pretty broad topic but what are some like sort of top ways that they've sort of come out of all of this to make sure that there's one you know everybody votes once it's a real hard problem i mean um you know we i'll typically have people ask so hey we can bank online why can't we vote online and 
you have to walk them through how different voting is from banking and how much freaking fraud exists in the e-commerce world that people just you know write off and insurance and all i mean these billions of dollars lost every year and you know can we accept you know 10% of all votes being lost <laughs> that's just not not acceptable right and so um it, it gets really hard and one of the thing one of the things that's why these internet voting systems unfortunately when you do that you end up having these sort of remote uh, uh identity proofing steps that have to be done which means you're doing a lot of identity related stuff for something that's fundamentally supposed to be an anonymous transaction. Uh, and, and that's, that's just unfortunate, but that's sort of how you have to do. That's why I tell people just, you know, no one should vote on the internet. And, you know, unfortunately there are certain types of voters that are going to be fundamentally disenfranchised, like, you know, folks on submarines, you know, spend six months at a time radio silent and pop up and, would love to be able to vote, but uh, that just may not be be totally feasible, and it sucks. But that's just how it is. So, so it can be really hard. I think the thing we try to do is make sure everyone's registered to vote, and that's something that we're we're a little worried about right now. In the sense that, you know, those are online systems. They're systems that, you know, I'm sure even if they're maintained and architected really well, there's going to be a time in the future when someone's going to be able to get into them, right? And um, those are ones where we're not so worried about the vote count being changed, but where people might show up and not be registered, which means they can't cast a, a ballot, which indirectly is going to affect the vote count and, and directly is going to affect people like, well, geez, if it's this hard and I can't even vote, why am I voting at all anyway? Right. And unfortunately, unlike Australia or Brazil, we don't have compulsory voting where you get fined, essentially you get taxed if you don't do it. But um, a lot of those places, I, I'm not sure. I think Brazil has a none of the above option. Nevada has a none of the above option. Um, and that's not very popular because folks don't like it when, you know, none of the above wins. You have to yeah. be careful. <laughs> so in Australia, the, uh, the actual registered to vote thing doesn't work as well as you'd like. Uh, I'm aware mm. of multiple people who have never registered to vote and uh, they won't be fined until they actually register to vote. So it's disencouraging for them to register because they'll be fined whenever that happens. Damn. See, there's no perfect system. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it sounds good. Everyone's compulsory to vote. Um, but the actual registration process is, is a downfall. So. Well, and there was a really fascinating, I don't know if you may have seen this, but uh, three or four years ago in New South Wales, they had an uh, internet voting um, election and they included in that page a PIWIC analytics um, uh, a third party, you know, analytics package, right? PIWIC is just a standard one. Uh, like an uh, open source Google thing. Yeah, like Google exactly. analytics, yeah. But at the time, PIWIC had a outdated uh, SSL HTTPS configuration. And so while the whole page was 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 up to date they're using modern cipher suites it was you know pretty 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 locked down this one little analytics page did not have uh the best ssl it was it was um vulnerable to beast and then one other you know brand named uh, ssl vulnerability that would allowed you under 
not terribly difficult, but not super easy circumstances to change arbitrary page contents and basically, you know, make them vote for anyone you wanted to vote. And that was in a live election. And uh, Vanessa Teague of uh, the University of Melbourne found that with Alex Halderman from University of Michigan. And we sort of used that and said, look, you know, internet voting and web enabled voting, you know, you have to really know your shit. You have to have all the, you know, uh, essentially all the web surface area you have to have locked down and locked down in a way that is, is because I think they were like a month behind the times in terms of SSL configuration, which doesn't seem like a lot, but in that case, because of the, those recent vulnerabilities was, was, was pretty serious. Yeah. Also uh, like, I mean, we tried to do the Australian census online as well. Um, uh, you know, which, oh yeah. Yeah, and, and that, that turned out really well. Uh, all the servers crashed, it didn't work, and uh, they had to send people around to knock on people's doors. And um, it was during the time of DEF CON, actually, and if you're out of the country, you didn't have to do the census. Um, so fortunately, I, I was out of the country, and they knocked on the door, and um, they, they gave me the form. They're like, you have to register in the, in the census. And we were like, nope, we don't. Um, had a nice little argument with the person who came around until they rang their supervisor and the supervisor said, no, they don't have to do it. See you later. Well, we're going to experiment with that here in a couple of years ourselves with, with our Decennial 10-year census. Oh, good luck. <laughs> There's clearly not enough money has been spent on the cybersecurity angle, so we'll see. Yeah, oh, gosh. Hey, Joe, so I wanted to kind of move a little bit more into some of the sort of like actual attacks and research that you've done. In and so um, I, somebody had mentioned in the chat hold that um, that was Walski had asked um, about the recent paper about the M650 machine. Oh, yeah. And um, we kind of wanted to go a little bit into that about that sort of research, how that's conducted and sort of uh, pushback you get, um, like Boat Hacking Village and other sort of researchers in general who actually take a look into the subject. Cool, yeah. Um, so uh, feel free to jump at any point, but that, the M650 is a voting machine that we've never actually had in uh, uh, a way that normal security researchers, so to speak, could could play with it. You know, we had access to one in 2007 when we hacked voting machines for the state of Ohio. And it's kind of interesting because these are central count optical scan tabulators, which means they read pieces of paper and look at little marks on them. But they read these are they they read these pieces of paper very, very quickly. So this is one where at first, you know, when we were playing with it, it has a two horsepower motor in it, which is like really wild for a freaking <laughs> optical scan tabulator like it, we saw this thing we're like wow that's a big belt on it we're like well, that's gonna take someone's fingers off or something so the first thing we did was unhook the damn uh <laughs> two horsepower motor from power but um that thing is really interesting because it's widely used throughout the united states and it's just strange because it's it's really old and it's created in this case that allows pieces to be swapped in and out of it. And and so the folks working on that were folks like Lyle Reed, Red or I think it's Red or Reed, and then um, uh, Stephen Champion, I think that's his name. Uh, anyway, but, uh, great folks that were just the whole DEF CON weekend sort of sitting there pinging away at it. And 
they rediscovered, so to speak, a discovery, a vulnerability we found in, or uh, we rediscovered a vulnerability we found in uh, 2007 that we didn't publicize in 2007. We, we kept in a private annex to the report that we published is sort of, you know, two to a fine grain level of detail about the vulnerabilities that would actually enable attackers. And so we kept those in a private annex. Um, but the, this was the DHCP server in that M650 is just super old and it has a couple of over, over buffer overflows that allow you know global access to memory. And um, the trick there is that you have to, it's so old that like it has zip disks. And so the super easy way to hack this thing is just to, it reads any file <laughs> into memory uploaded from the zip disk and, and runs it. And so like, you know, game over, right? You need to put this thing in a cage basically. But also there's this thing on the side that we saw that looked like a water spout and like, as if it got get too humid or whatever we did. We had no idea. This is this weird big mechanical machine, but you open it up and it's a, an ethernet connection. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, it very, it, it, you can, um, uh, telnet to it, I believe, or something. I think you can telnet to it. It's running some sort of server, and uh, it's just root root. It's it's, just, it's basically there's just no access control other than hopefully people don't know about computers for this kind of a machine. Um, one of the, the weird things though is we're you know it, it's unclear if a later version of the software sort of I mean. This is like pre-crypto, which is weird. You know, when you open one of these things up, it's like using, you know, CRCs, a cyclical redundancy checks, not, you know, cryptographic hashes or things like that. And so it's hard to, you know, understand, you know, how do you, is there any way to protect this kind of machine given sort of the threats we face in the current environment? Um, and I'm trying to think, is there anything else particularly interesting about that machine. I, I guess the, the thing I would stress is that it's hard to give people sort of actionable advice because they're going to use this thing. It's um, unfortunately just really old and, and not designed in a way that anticipated sort of, you know, adversaries, you know, any kind of adversary whatsoever. Um, so like what we find ourselves thinking about is, well, now, we, now we've moved to advising you that this thing is insecure to advising you about what kind of physical security you need to have around this thing to actually appropriately use it. And, and that just gets dicey because some of these places, they're like, what, we have to buy a cage? What are we going to do? What do we anchor it to? And like, I, I, that's not my area of expertise at all. But I mean, I have some ideas. They're probably bad ideas. Um, but that's unfortunately where it goes. And it's either that or you need to get something different and... Uh, get something different is, you know, costly, obviously. And in many cases, because elections just, you, we don't, we don't pay for, we don't, there's very few resources for election officials. You know, if you're going to fill a pothole, or if you're going to buy a new voting machine at the county level, you better believe that that pothole is getting filled because you're going to hear about it constantly as people's, you know, transmissions and, and suspensions go out and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so the 650s, is, 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 that was a particularly interesting, you know, that's the first time we've ever gotten access to that, whereas in the last voting village before we had um, many of the, the same machines, uh, at least in certain forms around, but this is the, the first time we got a crack at this thing. It was, it's it's kind of cool. Yeah, no, I only got to check out the uh, voting machine village for a very brief period of time at DEF CON. 
And it's really cool to see people like researchers actually just hitting these kind of things, um, especially seeing like really young people coming out and learning like the typical tricks of the trade as far as escaping whatever sandbox they might be in on an electronic voting machine the same way you do it anywhere else. But just seeing that they can access like admin panels and all sorts of random things um, just there without any additional tools. Yeah, yeah, nothing makes me um, about to turn 41 feel as old as realizing that the people really killing it are like, you know, 16 to 21. And I'm just like, whoa, man, you're half my age and all that stuff. But, you know, it's totally awesome. One of the things that we have some challenges at the village, like, um, you know, it's not all kumbaya hunky dory. Um, One of the things that we've been trying to do is, you know, there are other villages, you know, the biomedical village, the automotive village where they had um, somewhat uh, tense relationships between the village and the vendors. And as, as you pointed out, um, we, we, the vendors have just been for many, many years, just den- in uh, total denial. Right. And this, you know, I've been doing this since 2003 and every time we put something out, it's just, that's, that's not realistic. That's old stuff. Oh, yep. Um, yep. You know, just the constant things like that. But at the same time, the biomedical village, the automotive village, found a way to basically convince the manufacturers in those areas and even, you know, academic researchers and whatever to bring their stuff, you know, in whatever form, even if it's in whiteboard form, but hopefully in a form where people can, you know, hack on it. Bring your stuff, and it it is the, you know, most amazing, creative, and valuable, free sort of product tire kicking and consulting you could ever imagine. And so we're trying to make the case to vendors like election systems and software that threatened us at the, at the recent DEF CON voting village. They, they basically said, you bought old machines, the software resident on those machines is still subject to our copyright. You have no license to that software. Um, luckily, the, the Harvard Legal Clinic, the wonderful uh, lawyers and students at the Harvard Cyber Law Clinic were basically like, yeah, that's bullshit. Um, you can't threaten people who have bought something in an open market that they can't do stuff with software that's resident on the thing that bought them to make it do things and make it run. Um, that's just bogus. Um, and they didn't go any further with that, but that's just, you know, uh, typical of these sort of tense, unfortunate uh, relationships where, you know, we want to make sure that these things are, that we have, you know, go into any voting situation with eyes wide open. We know we're aware of the the flaws they may have. And I'd love a day where I'm like, damn, man, this is perfectly usable for an election. And we have some hints of that coming. Like, and if you want me to talk about the voting system that LA County has built, they're actually building their own voting machine. It's it's pretty interesting. Dual chip trusted computing platform. Um, but anyway, the, that's something where we're hoping the, the the voting village can find a way to sort of convince certain vendors, maybe not all, maybe not the big ones, maybe not anyone, but maybe the innovative ones, um, maybe like L.A. County that is going to have its own voting machine. They just spent $300 million in five years to manufacture and build a prototype and, and build 30,000 of these things that if I have my way, will be open source using a modified BSD license and something called the OSET license, uh, dual license. Um, anyway, but that's the kind of thing that has real promise. You know, we built this thing essentially 
with security being, you know, a first class citizen in the design and with it uh, being open source, although there's some controversy around that because they haven't actually released the freaking source code yet, but they claim it's open source and that's a very severe contradiction. Um, but that's the kind of thing where hopefully if that happens, anyone, any county in the United States, any anybody in the world um, can use this, this sort of COTS, you know, commercial off the shelf voting system um, that is, is pretty, pretty well designed. And um, it should, you know, it's kind of weird. It's like an extra market outside of the market kind of a solution where, um, the market has sort of failed us for many, many, many years in delivering substandard voting machines that are just not secure and have usability problems. You know, the 2000 election, there was a, uh, that was a, a, a punch card machine uh, usability problem where, you know, it's, it's just fact that a bunch of people voted for the wrong person and we had a different president than the president that we should have in 2000. Um, in Florida, uh, and and that's due to usability problems. <laughs> and so we we need to both, you know, people so are so quick to say uh, secure systems are less usable systems, or more usable systems are less secure, and that's bullshit. You know, you can design a system if you put both those things in front from the beginning uh, that doesn't have to make those kinds of trade offs. And I think we've done that with the LA County system. Anyway, I could talk about that forever. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, have you guys in the voting hacking village got any actual like pushback or like legal threats from manufacturers for um, featuring them in your village for people to hack on? The close it came was that sort of copyright threat. We definitely see them saying this isn't realistic. It has none of the um, operational or physical security controls that we have in an actual polling place. And it's like, yeah, that's not the point. You know, we sort of, threw a bunch of machines in a room and said, just don't set anything on fire. And because we don't want to have to evacuate the DEF CON hotel, right? That's not a good idea. Um, but th th that's the basic rule. And, you know, it's not meant to be, we had hoped at some point, you know, and I still hope to do this to have a mock polling place, but you know, that sort of combines, you know, social engineering, physical security, it combines all these different things in one place. And you really got to do that right unless it's just going to be a total farce and people are going to be just handing you your own ass the whole day. Right. And so uh, that's something we haven't ever designed. And by all means, if you got ideas, folks, um, you too can <laughs> uh, be part of the voting machine village. If you want to spend your whole DEFCON in, in one room rather than a bunch of rooms. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, I, I think I'm, I'm now just rambling. That's really awesome. So does anybody else here who's talking have any questions for Joe about voting security? Oh, how have the reactions been to the uh, the voting village like paper that was released? Yeah, so um, uh, there was a sort of muted re reaction from the voting system vendors. The, the typical kind of reaction that we've seen before um, but a little less aggressive for whatever reason. Um, the one that was really surprising was the NAS, the National Association of Secretaries of State. Um, they've been sort of pretty, it's been kind of a tense relationship, but they came out and said, look, we want the best folks, you know, uh, analyzing these systems. And we think that cybersecurity can only be better for doing that kind of stuff. And that was one where, 
you know, I, I hadn't ex didn't expect that, and I was glad to see that. And I think that may hopefully, you know, I, I'm a very you know. <laughs> It's, it's easier to get things done in a collaborative, cooperative environment, especially when it comes to government services. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm hopeful that, that that sort of sets the stage for next year, there being a bigger village and, and having, you know, like, for example, I'd love for election officials to bring things they have suspicions about, <laughs> you know, have a whole like chunk of the room that's like, bring your your suspicious shit to this chunk of the room and it could be even you know things like tamper evident tape that they think is not up to snuff that they spent more money on than they should and some some of them have their own homebrew stuff like there's a, a an election official who has a, a system that basically uh, checkpoints uh, hashes or I think maybe signatures, something like that, of all the software that he's running, you know, throughout the day and, you know, uh, on all the systems and voting systems and e-poll books and stuff like that. And presumably, you know, if something changes, he would see it and things like that, but he's never actually caught anyone. And so he's like, I, I want to test this where people are actually trying to mess with it. And I was like, do I have the place for you? <laughs> I think we could, we could do exactly that. Um, yeah. No, that's really awesome. Um, so yeah, no, we've definitely gone over a lot of different things. I mean, I guess the last question that I had for you, we kind of already discussed, but it was just, what are some of the ways that you personally would think that this whole process, I guess, of of like vendors and you know local municipalities, states, everybody, actually improve this process overall? Are there any like big points that you'd like to make before uh, we wrap up? That we may not have covered somehow. Oh, sorry, I wasn't pushing my push to talk. I was just talking. Um, but I think there's some, there's a lot of, this is sort of the point in time, like two years after sort of a big crisis where people start to have crazy ideas. Like there was an article in Esquire about, is it time to federalize elections, which would require a constitutional amendment that all the states would have to agree to or some amendment and I don't even remember how many states, some number of states have to agree to, whatever. Um, that sounds really hard <laughs> to actually get done. And there are some really crazy ideas. For example, maybe voting should be somehow, um, in some states at least, uh, uh, intertwined with the lottery. So like every millionth voter gets a million dollars, right? And that definitely gets you know, and part of that, you know, part of the impetus there is to make it look like more like gambling machines, right? If you ever look into the security of gaming machines, it's totally fascinating. In fact, there's this really cool book called License to Steal that starts off with a guy in Vegas getting shot in the head, and it sort of exposes this really interesting organized criminal gang, gang that was using the people certifying the gaming devices um, as essentially ways of implanting malicious software that they, they then could exploit in slot machines and other kinds of, of devices or, or, or bias random number generators and stuff like that. Um, and so you can imagine by making the voting systems in modern digital elections have some part of the lottery like entwined with it, one, you'd start to get people caring about it. <laughs> Two, you'd get many more resources and a lot of scrutiny because you want it to be really fair now because money's at stake, right? Um, the trick is, is that politically that's probably a non-starter because you're going to have a bunch of people participating in voting that wouldn't have before, and that means you know Republicans and folks who who tend to um, not want as many people voting um, 
would um, uh, not see that as a good idea. And so we're in sort of this realm of potentially crazy ideas, which is why I think things like this, the, I wish I had more technical stuff to point you about the Los Angeles County voting system, but that's one where that stuff that potentially about this time next year, there'll be a full stack system with, you know, easy, you know, cheap components you can buy, at least, you know, the boards and stuff to actually build stuff on. And that, that, that's when it's, it's really sort of like, that's when we essentially have like a Linux for voting systems and things like that. Maybe not exactly the same, but something where we have the potential for doing that. And that could be a real game changer because then you could have folks that know something about security or know something about actually running, um, you know, these kinds of processes that wouldn't normally, you know, stick their neck out there because they have to build and maintain, you know, a software stack and a, and a, a chunk of hardware and stuff like that. And so, that's it. I have no idea. That could totally flop, and it could be a big bust, like so many things in life. But so many of us are hoping that that, that we get solutions like that, which tend to uh, short circuit many of the. We've been spinning our wheels for so many years on the same things, and it, it's just now that people are realizing that paper is sort of, you know, table stakes. You you got to have paper. You have to keep paper. Um, because this is an anonymous process because you want to be able to recount these things because you don't want software to destroy this stuff. And uh, something we didn't talk about, which I did in my postdoc, where, you know, once you have the paper, what do you do with the paper? Well, you got to count it. How do you count it? Well, we developed some statistical techniques <laughs> that mean that, you know, for example, to verify a uh, statewide election in California, sorry to use California so much, if you have like a 1% margin, which is a pretty close race, you can you only need to count something like 40 ballots, wait, 400 ballots throughout the entire state randomly selected to verify that outcome and basically tell people, well, you can do a recount with the lawyers and the, all the money and stuff, but we just told you what the answer is. And uh, if we can do that for every election, then between paper and newer, more secure systems and these post hoc statistical verification techniques that we have, you know, we could have really sound elections, but, you know, getting from here to there, it, it's going to take some work, but yeah. I'd like to say that Thug Crowd is definitely all about that paper. <laughs> also, one, just one other bit is, uh, you know, so we don't end this on all, you know, doom and gloom, <laughs> um, is like, what's someone, like a vendor or someone, people out there who are doing this, like, correctly, like, kind of like see as more sort of the model of what we should be moving towards yeah so the la county system is one where it's a ballot marking device um and it, it has a it's gorgeous man it like it, it writes only the selections you made onto the ballot and then puts this big ass qr code on it that is just a serialization of the ballot positions and then an hmac of uh, over the, the ballot contents, uh, hash message, message authentication code. Um, that thing's pretty cool. Um, Austin, Texas, uh, Travis County, Texas, I believe. I always get Travis and Harris County mixed up if we have any Texas, sorry. Um, they built, they had a voting machine on paper that I'm hoping they'll be able to build someday that is pretty cool. And one of the unique aspects of it, it's all caught. So it's all, you could go to Best Buy and buy the crap you need to run this voting system. But it actually, before blockchain was cool, <laughs> which is a fun thing for an old person to say, um, it actually used 
entangled logs. So every machine would broadcast out log entries to all the other machines, and then they would all cryptographically sign them and broadcast them out and stuff like that, which meant that it was just a really neat kind of a trick for making things harder to uh, subvert and, you know, cover your tracks by modifying logs. Anyway, that system is a cryptographic system end to end, which means that you get a receipt that doesn't prove how you voted, but that with something in your head that you remember, you can look up later and, and verify that your ballot was actually included in the count. And then there are, you know, mathematical properties you can use to verify that the only ballots that are valid are in the count. Anyway, a bunch of really interesting methods that unfortunately are just really hard to explain to voters. <laughs> you know, like last thing you want to do is you go from just counting ballots to a whole bunch of mixed nets and cryptography and stuff. And they, oh man, it just gets really hard really quick. Um, but, but I'm hopeful that those kinds of things will, cause those are really well engineered, at least on paper and software and simulated and stuff like that. Um, and, and then I'm trying to think if there's any particular vendor I would call out. There's some that are trying to be so, if you guys, if anyone in the room's ever done any work with the U.S. intelligence community, there's a really awesome uh, shop called Galois that does a lot of work with DARPA and IARPA and folks like that. Um, Galois has a spinout called FreeAndFair.us, which is essentially their attempt to bring formally formally verified software systems and cryptographic primitives and stuff like that to voting. And man, if anyone can do some really kick-ass software design that is like secure to the hilt, it's going to be those guys. And so I'm excited to see what they're going to do too. That's awesome. Yeah, you've definitely given us quite a bit to think about and chew on for this election thing. I mean, this is like such a broad topic. There's so many moving pieces to it and there's so many misconceptions that I feel like you definitely helped clear in a lot of ways. So thank you very much for coming on and talking to us. Yeah, make sure you go vote. I mean, the number one thing that we can do to fuck it all up is not vote. Exactly. <laughs> but thanks for having you me. You guys are awesome. Thanks for, uh, I'll be a part of your community. Cheers. Awesome. Heck yeah. yeah. Um, so thanks. Awesome. So yeah. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's getting kind of late. Um, uh, my Wi Fi, I'm hopefully be able to shut down this uh session here. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm gonna just I guess call it now. Um, but yeah, for everybody, uh, next week we have um, Pen Tester Lab who's gonna be talking to us, and it's gonna be a good show. We also next week we will have information about the certification. If you guys have been wondering why I have CISSP next to my name. We are going to be releasing our very own cert. Uh, <laughs> so, if yes, I'm, that's all I guess I'll say for now. Um, but please tune in next week for the beginning of the show to hear more information about how you too control the InfoSec community. So, um, thanks everybody for listening. Thanks, Joe. And we'll definitely include all the notes that we have uh, put, all of our links and everything, into our show notes, um, which we'll clean up later this week. Thanks, everybody. And also thanks to all of our Patreon supporters. We have Chris Wallace, Harmony, Null Cookies, Rob Poners, uh, Rob Poners and um, Sterling Archer. So <clears throat> thanks, everybody, and we'll talk to you later. Oh, also big thanks to uh, Hacking TV for the host earlier. Oh, yes. Thanks, Hacking TV as well. And everybody else who hosts us. Um, uh, Dan is in here this week, so uh, shut up and get a lawyer for him. And, uh... <laughs> Absolutely. Birthday oh, day. yeah.
Happy birthday. All right, we'll see you guys later. Good night. Cheers. Good night. Peace.